Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the second episode of our mini-series on the movies either greenlit or picked up by British producer David Putnam during his 15-month run as the head of Columbia Pictures in 1986 and 1987. Our first episode got into the background of who David Putnam was, why a studio like Columbia might be interested in such an out-of-left-field choice for studio head, and why Putnam would leave the position after only 15 months on the job. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I pepper in some movie trailers and commercial spots to help illustrate how these movies were being marketed at the time. You won't hear a lot of those in the next two episodes, as Columbia did not always do their best to promote the Putnam movies. Many of these movies would not have trailers or commercials created for them. Even today, if you were to search for the trailer to, say, the Daniel Day-Lewis film Stars and Bars, one of the movies we'll be discussing on this episode, you just won't find it. You will come across a 66-second scene from the movie on the official Sony Pictures Home Entertainment YouTube page, the irony being that the film has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. You can rent it for $3.99 from Amazon Prime or Google Play or Vudu or a half dozen other streaming services, or you can buy it for $12.99, but for physical media, your choices are an old VHS tape or an old Laserdisc. Why does the home video entertainment division of a major theatrical distribution company even have a scene up for a movie it never intends to release on home video? The next two episodes will start diving into the films themselves, first here with those released between September 1987 and June 1988, and then the next episode of the films released between July 1988 and February 1990, plus a wrap-up of Mr. Putnam's life and legacy at Columbia. We will start this episode with the two films approved or acquired by David Putnam that were released by Columbia during his stewardship. The screenplay for the first film was written by Daniel Petrie Jr. in industry terms on spec after he had left his job in the mailroom at the powerful talent agency ICM in 1982. The then-titled Windy City was such a hot commodity it would sell within three days of being sent out to producers in August of 1983. At the time, Petrie had just turned in a draft of a long gestating movie at Paramount for producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, who, upon hearing of the bidding war for Windy City, would tie the writer up for nearly a year working on their script, Beverly Hills Cop. We all know how big that film was, but King's Road, the production company who had purchased Windy City, was having trouble attaching a director to it because the protagonist was a corrupt homicide lieutenant. Jim McBride who had not worked since completing his remake of Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless nearly three years earlier, was eager to get another movie off the ground and was eager to show he could make a more conventional, quote, Hollywood-like, unquote, movie than the offbeat indies he had been making for close to 20 years. McBride would work with Petrie on changes to the script, most importantly changing the setting of the story from Chicago to New Orleans because, according to McBride, he felt its culture would heighten the plot with a greater sense of moral ambiguity. Because, you know, Chicago is famous for its lack of moral ambiguity. 
This would be the second lead role for Dennis Quaid, who had been making a name for himself for years, co-starring in such films as The Right Stuff, The Long Riders, and Breaking Away, after 1984's Dreamscape. While this would be Ellen Barkin's first lead after years of making a name for herself with, with roles in Diner, Tender Mercies, and The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. The cast would be rounded out with the likes of Ned Beatty, Lisa Jane Persky, and John Goodman, who would start filming this movie straight from coming off filming David Byrne's True Stories. With the story moving from Chicago to New Orleans, the film would need a new title. And so it would begin shooting in late October 1985 under the title Nothing But The Truth. Quaid would spend most of the month before production and the first two weeks of production shadowing detectives on the New Orleans police force, where one night he would be witness to the death of a suspect during a robbery gone wrong. He would also spend a couple weeks learning Cajun customs and dialects from a local native family. Barkin, too, would spend time shadowing local figures in preparation for her role as a Louisiana state attorney, including spending time with the city's ADA. Filming would last until the end of January 1986 and was supposed to be released through a first option output deal Kings Road had with 20th Century Fox. Fox would reject the film, and Kings Road had Stephen Friedman would make a deal with a new independent distributor, New Century Vista, to release both this film and another, the John Cryer comedy Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, with both films scheduled to be released in February 1987. The film would be released in Paris and in other parts of France in late November 1986, and would do some decent business across Europe throughout the early part of 1987. The film would also play at film festivals in Rio de Janeiro and in Cognac, France, where it would win the Grand Jury Prize. In America, Nothing But The Truth would have its first showing at the U.S. Film Festival in Park City, Utah, which has since been renamed the Sundance Film Festival. It is said that Robert Redford was so impressed with the film that he would implore David Putnam, who was at the festival looking for films to purchase for the studio, to make an offer for the film. Putnam saw the film and agreed, and would make arrangements to pick up the film from New Century Vista. Putnam would also allow McBride to rework the film, particularly the ending. Columbia would set a release date for the now-titled The Big Easy on August 21st. However, the Sunday before the film opened in New York City, Columbia did not place a traditional pre-opening ad in the New York Times Arts and Culture section, which worried director McBride and others involved in the film that maybe Columbia wasn't going to support it the way they felt it should. But they need not have worried. Opening on just 16 screens in the greater New York City area, and another 16 in Los Angeles and other major markets, the film grossed over $353,000 in those first three days. The $11,000 per screen average would be the highest in the nation that weekend, more than double its next competitor. The following weekend, Columbia would quickly expand the film to 1,138 theaters, and the film would gross over $3 million. The following weekend, which was Labor Day weekend, the film would expand again to its widest point of release in 1,219 screens and gross another $4.2 million. 
After that, it would start losing a couple hundred screens each week and see its weekly haul fall 30 to 40% each week. After 19 weeks of release, the Big Easy would finish its run with nearly $17.7 million in ticket sales. Not to be confused with the Big Easy, The Big Town was an adaptation of a 1967 novel called The Arm by Clark Howard about a young man from small-town America who travels to the big city, in this case Chicago, to become a professional gambler. Producers had been trying in some capacity to make a movie of The Arm since its publication, but it would take nearly 29 years for a movie to finally come to fruition, thanks to producer Martin Ransahoff, who had previously helped to make 1961's The Hustler, a movie about pool sharks, and 1965's The Cincinnati Kid, a movie about card sharks. So why not a movie about dice sharks? Matt Dillon was signed for the lead role, and the supporting cast would include Susie Amos, Bruce Dern, Lee Grant, Tommy Lee Jones, Diane Lane, and Tom Skerritt. Harold Becker, the director of The Onion Fields and Taps, was signed to direct, and the $15 million film would start production in Toronto on September 7, 1986. But after three days of shooting, Becker walked off the set. Whatever happened, he was not coming back. The film had been greenlit before Putnam took the job of Columbia Studio Head, but it would be up to him to help find a replacement. Putnam had but one person in mind. Ben Bolt, a British director who had been working on television shows on both sides of the Atlantic for more than a decade, but had never directed a feature film before. And, oh, he was the son of legendary British screenwriter Robert Bolt, whose resume included the scripts for Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, A Man for All Seasons, Ryan's Daughter, David Lean's aborted version of the HMS Bounty Story, and the David Putnam produced The Mission. As the younger Bolt would put it in an interview the week before the film opened, he was sitting at home watching television on a Thursday night when he got a call from Putnam asking him to read a script that was already on its way over with the hopes that he would take over the directing job from the director who had just walked off the set. By Wednesday, Bolt would be on set in Toronto. During shooting, there was a discussion about changing the title of the film. Some were concerned that a movie called The Arm would be seen by some as a drug drama, in part because of the Frank Sinatra drug drama, The Man with the Golden Arm. It was decided the film would be retitled The Big Town, although there doesn't seem to be any documentation as to why specifically something as generic as The Big Town. Shooting would continue through late November, with some location shooting in Chicago to give the film an air of authenticity. Maybe it was because there was already a movie in the marketplace called The Big Easy and audiences were confused, or maybe it was because Matt Dillon wasn't that big a star, nor was Diane Lane or Tommy Lee Jones or Bruce Dern or Tom Skerritt, but for whatever reason, audiences just did not get behind The Big Town. Opening in 762 theaters nationwide on September 25, 1987, the film would gross only $776,000. It would quickly disappear from first-run theaters, and after 14 weeks of mostly sub-run playdates at dollar houses, 
The Big Easy would finish its run with only $1.73 million in ticket sales. Ridley Scott's Someone to Watch Over Me began its life in 1982 when Scott met writer Howard Franklin at a party and listened to Franklin's story idea about a married policeman who falls in love with a woman he is assigned to protect, a witness to a murder. But Scott was about to head to England to start production on his fantasy drama Legend. So he and Franklin agreed to get back together when Scott was done with that film and start working on this one. But Franklin didn't wait, and he spent two years working on the screenplay. When Scott completed Legend towards the end of 1984, he would pitch the movie to Columbia Pictures. But they would reject it, as would every other studio in town. But when Putnam took the job at Columbia, one of the first calls he would get would be from his old pal Ridley. Hey, buddy, congratulations on the new job. Can I send you over a project I've been developing? Sure, old pal, send it right over. Someone to Watch Over Me would be the first film greenlit by Putnam, and the $13 million film would begin production in New York City in early December 1986. Tom Berenger, who would receive an Oscar nomination for his role as Staff Sergeant Barnes in Oliver Stone's platoon during the production of Someone to Watch Over Me, would star as Detective Mike Keegan, and Mimi Rogers, in her first leading role, would play the New York socialite and murder witness whom Keegan falls for. The remaining cast would include Lorraine Bracco as the jilted Mrs. Keegan, Jerry Orbach as Keegan's boss, and Mark Moses, Behringer's co-star in Platoon, as the murder victim. The film would shoot in New York City for the remainder of December and the first part of January, before moving back to Los Angeles for another two months. Scott would edit the film throughout the spring, and Columbia would set a release date on October 9th. But it would be at a private screening of Someone to Watch Over Me at the Burbank Studios on Wednesday, September 16th, where Putnam would announce to his stunned co-workers that he would be leaving the company before the end of the month. Although it is a charge that, wrongly or rightly, will be attributed to a number of the movies mentioned on these two episodes, no one can be accused of trying to sabotage the release of Someone to Watch Over Me, which happened a mere ten days after Putnam left the studio. Theaters were already booked and ad buys in newspapers and magazines and across television were already paid for. The $2.9 million opening weekend from 892 theaters wasn't particularly bad, but it was also up against the fourth week of the national obsession known as Fatal Attraction, which also fell into the romantic thriller genre and would gross more than $10 million this Columbus Day holiday weekend. Fatal Attraction would continue to keep the country in its thrall for months, sucking all of the air away from a movie like Someone to Watch Over Me. It's certainly not amongst Ridley Scott's best films, but it deserved better from audiences. The film would lose 40% of its audience each week from first week to fourth week, and after 13 weeks, the film would exit theaters with $10.28 million in ticket sales. By 1986, John Borman had already directed nine films, including such iconic films as Point Blank, Deliverance, for which he was nominated for Oscars as both producer and director, and Excalibur. His most recent film, The Emerald Forest, had been a surprise box office hit in 1985, 
and, incidentally, was the first movie to ever be put on videotape and sent out to award voters. So yeah, John Borman was the creator of the Oscar screener. Put that in your brain in case it ever comes up as a trivia question. Anyway, Borman had been working on a screenplay for years, a loosely autobiographical story about a working-class family outside London surviving through World War II with love, laughter, pain, and, in the eyes of ten-year-old Borman surrogate Billy, a sense of wonderment. And like a number of other movies on this list, it would spend years being developed outside Columbia Pictures. Borman and his co-producer, Jake Eberts, financed their very British $9.5 million World War II comedy drama, ironically not from any UK money, but from German, Italian, and Japanese investors. Borman had made a deal with Embassy Home Entertainment for the American video rights, but the sale of Embassy Pictures to Columbia Pictures around the release of The Emerald Forest in late summer 1985 put that deal into mothballs. Eberts even begged Coca-Cola to continue the financing, but they pulled it in anyway. Because of their past dealings, Eberts was worried about talking to Putnam in September 1986, weeks after Putnam arrived at Columbia, fearing there would be charges of favoritism from one British producer to another. But Putnam really genuinely enjoyed the screenplay, finding a number of similarities to another of his favorite films, Federico Fellini's 1973 classic, Amarcord. Columbia would pick the film up on what the industry calls a negative pickup, giving Eberts more money than Coca-Cola would have provided in the original embassy deal. And they planned for a late 1987 platform release. The film would show at a number of film festivals during the late summer and early fall of 1987, in advance of its opening at the Baronet Theater just across the street from the flagship Bloomingdale store in Midtown Manhattan on October 16th. The early reviews were ecstatic, and Putnam would not be the only one to compare the film to Fellini's. The film would open at the AMC Century 14 and the Edwards Town Center in Costa Mesa, California on October 30th, and the film would continue to slowly open across the country as effusive review after gushing review came rolling in. By the end of 1987, Hope and Glory had appeared on more than 50 of the top critics' top 10 lists. Only broadcast news would appear on more lists than Hope and Glory. But also towards the end of the year, Hope and Glory found itself in the middle of a kerfuffle not of its own making. Columbia would pull The Last Emperor from a major Christmas Day national expansion, and Cineplex Odeon, who operated many of the most popular and highest-grossing theaters in major cities, would retaliate by canceling all Columbia bookings at their theaters both in America and in Canada. And Hope and Glory's expansion after eight weeks in theaters was stalled at 100 playdates. But then the film started gaining a whole mess of awards and nominations. The National Board of Review would name the film one of the ten best of the year. The Boston Society of Film Critics would award it their Best Picture Award. The National Society of Film Critics gave Borman their Best Director Award. The British Academy would nominate the film for 13 awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and no less than three acting nominations. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association would nominate the film for three awards, 
and would award it the Golden Globe for Best Musical or Comedy. By then, Cineplex and Columbia would kiss and make up, and the studio would expand the film to 500 theaters nationwide on February 19th, in anticipation of picking up some Academy Award nominations the following Tuesday. It did. Five nominations, in fact. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction. But the film would not find the kind of mainstream success one would expect from one of the most heralded films of the year. Even at its widest release, Hope and Glory would never gross a million dollars on any given weekend, and despite playing for more than a year in theaters, it would just barely squeak past the $10 million gross mark. We've previously spoken in some length about Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor, which Columbia would release on November 20th, on our Hemdale episode back in April, so I won't go into a whole bunch of detail here. I will say that of all the movies Putnam acquired at Columbia, either through green lights or acquisitions, it is my opinion that this is the one film that the post-Putnam Columbia screwed up the most in terms of releasing properly. But you should really listen to that Hemdale episode for the details. It's also ironic that, as of 2020, The Last Emperor, the film that no one outside of David Putnam wanted for Columbia, is the last of the 11 Best Picture winners for the studio. Only Disney, who has never won a Best Picture for the studio itself, has a longer Best Picture drought. In the 33 years since The Last Emperor, 13 of those Best Picture winners have gone to companies like DreamWorks, Miramax, Open Road, Orion, Summit, and the Weinstein Company that no longer exist or are now only production companies whose films are released through other sources. After several years of becoming the preeminent Scottish filmmaker of his generation, with, with such films as Gregory's Girl, Local Hero, and my favorite of his, Comfort and Joy, Bill Forsyth would be making his American film debut with Housekeeping. The director would be given a copy of the novel by Mary Lynn Robinson when he was in New York City in December 1983 to receive an award from the New York Film Critics Circle for Best Screenplay for Local Hero. Diane Keaton whom Forsyth had gotten to know socially through events like the New York Film's Critics Circle Awards Banquet, agreed to take on the lead role of Sylvie, an eccentric woman taking care of her two nieces after their previous caretakers, their mother and then their grandmother, both pass. Based on Keaton's name, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, the men behind Canon Films, who were looking to move beyond their exploitative roots, agreed to finance the $6 million production. Forsyth and his team started scouting locations in Canada, and production was set to begin in early September 1986. But then six weeks before the start of principal photography, Keaton would unexpectedly leave the project, and Canon would pull their funding the following day. Desperate to keep the movie from falling apart, Forsyth called David Putnam, who had produced Local Hero for Forsyth, for help. Not only would Putnam agree to pick up the film from Canon Films in a matter of days, he would personally wire over funds to Canon from his own bank account to get the movie out from the Go-Go Boys immediately while his team at Columbia worked on 
the remainder of the funding for the film. Putnam would also suggest an up-and-coming actress, Christine Lottie, to take over the lead role. The casting of Lottie would also help lower the budget from $6 million to $5.5 million, and production would begin as expected without any further delays on September 22nd. The film would represent a number of firsts for Forsyth. In addition to being his first Hollywood studio feature, it would also be the first he would shoot outside of Scotland, the first he would be adapting from someone else's work, and the first time he would have a female lead. Originally scheduled to open in the summer of 1987, the film was delayed until late November, although the film would make its world premiere at the Tokyo Film Festival in late September, where it would be nominated for the grand prize and win the jury prize and a Best Screenplay Award for Forsyth. Housekeeping would open on two screens, including the Regency Cinema in New York City, on November 25th, the day before Thanksgiving. In its first five days, the film would gross $43,000, its per-screen average second only to The Last Emperor. The reviews for the film were also uniformly positive. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said the film was by far the most accomplished comedy yet made by Mr. Forsyth, while Roger Ebert called it one of the strangest and best films of the year, while singling out Lottie as the perfect choice for Sylvie. Yet, the film would never play in more than two dozen theaters in any given week, and it would barely gross a million dollars when Columbia stopped tracking it after six weeks. Although the film would continue to play in one theater each in Los Angeles and New York City through late February 1988, in case it secured any Oscar nominations. It would not. Meanwhile, Dan Keaton would still be on screen in the movie she left this project for, Baby Boom, which would leave theaters the same week as Housekeeping, having grossed more than $26.7 million. The Bonnie Bedelia starring The Stranger was not greenlit by Putnam, but it would benefit to a certain degree by his not- being the typical studio head. The film, which features Bedelia as a woman suffering from amnesia, who discovers she is the sole survivor of a brutal triple murder, had been improved by a former head of production, Steve Somer. When Putnam was shown a cut of the film in the summer of 1987, he was appalled by how bad the film was. But he allowed his team to host a test screening of the film, which was appallingly received. Tom McCarthy, the executive vice president of worldwide post-production at Columbia, had another 15 minutes cut out of the film after that screening, but the film was still a mess. Columbia would then bring master film editor Jim Clark, who had won an Oscar on the Putnam-produced The Killing Fields, in to try and make sense of the film. The biggest problem, according to Clark in his autobiography, was that the film was told end to beginning not unlike Harold Pinter's Betrayal or Christopher Nolan's Memento. But Adolfo Aristeran was not Harold Pinter or even Christopher Nolan. So Clark started putting the movie back into some kind of linear order. Some new voiceovers were written and recorded. All signs that the California set film was shot in Argentina were removed, and Clark's revised version was tested again. While the results were better than before, it still did not go over well with audiences. 
But maybe because it wasn't a Putnam production, new studio head Don Steele would give the $4 million production a token release on December 4th, 1987. Three screens in the Los Angeles area, far away from the Westwood Century City Hollywood movie zone, in El Toro, Palos Verdes, and Puente Hills, and on seven screens in the New York City area, with only one screen each in Manhattan and the Bronx. By the 11th, it would be completely gone from theaters. Grosses were never reported. Leonard Part 6 was another film that is unfortunately saddled to the Putnam era, but isn't exactly one of his. When Putnam arrived on the Columbia lot, the movie was already deep into pre-production. Bill Cosby was one of the biggest stars in entertainment at the time, and was someone everybody wanted to work with. Cosby had gone to Columbia to set up his first new film in six years, because Columbia was a natural fit for Cosby. Cosby had been a spokesperson for the soda off and on for nearly 20 years, and he was also the owner of a Coca-Cola bottling plant. With Coke also owning Columbia, there were opportunities for a series of cross-promotions between the movie and the soda brand. Putnam would be the one who suggested the director, British commercial director Paul Wyland, who would be making his feature directing debut, and put his old friend Alan Marshall in charge of the production. But it would be clear from the earliest dailies that the film was going to be a mess. Marshall, a tough bloke from the east end of London, was not one to play nice, and regularly butted heads with Cosby and his entourage about the production of the film. Cosby was so infuriated with Marshall after a couple of weeks of coming to metaphorical blows with the producer, Cosby would call Putnam and demand Marshall be replaced. But Putnam refused. So Cosby went all the way up to the CEO of Coca-Cola and remade his demand. According to many, it was this move by Cosby that would be the first major strike against Putnam with his bosses. Marshall's involvement in the film would be limited after that, while Steve Somer, the former Columbia executive who greenlit the film, would come aboard as the, quote, executive producer for Mr. Cosby, unquote. When the film was finally assembled, even Cosby realized just how bad it was. It is said that Cosby even offered Columbia $10 million in cash and another $10 million in personal endorsement time if they would let him destroy the negative. But Coke felt that even if the film was bad, Cosby was a big enough star that his fans would still come out and see the movie. A release date of December 18th was set, and Columbia would put more than $5 million into the promotions. But, like what we spoke about with Hope and Glory earlier, Leonard Part 6 would also be shut out of all Cineplex Odeon theaters in America and Canada, this time just a few days before the film would open, after all the 35mm prints had been struck for the film. It is estimated this move would cost Columbia nearly $4 million in the cost of creating and shipping the prints that Cineplex would never use. Cosby attempted to distance himself from the film by going on Larry King Live the night before the film opened and blaming Putnam for all the problems with the production. But audiences don't give a darn about inside studio politics. They don't often care about reviews either. 
But the word of mouth was out before the movie was released. Leonard Part 6 was a dud. Opening on 1,142 theaters, the film would open in 10th place with just $1.3 million in ticket sales. The next Friday was Christmas Day. And let me tell you, as someone who worked in movie theaters for 33 years, Christmas Day is one of the five busiest days of the year at movie theaters. And when Christmas falls on a Friday, the whole darn weekend is crazy. Three Men and a Baby, the number one film in the nation Christmas weekend, was up 37% over the previous weekend. Throw Mama from the Train was up 19%. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles up 53%. Even Nuts, the critically panned drama featuring Barbara Streisand, was up 46%. But Leonard Part 6 would be the biggest loser of the weekend, dropping down to 13th place, having lost more than 20% of its first weekend audience. The film would be gone from theaters before the end of January, with a final gross of $4.6 million. The first Columbia release of 1988 would be School Days, the second joint from Spike Lee. And it showed the world that She's Gotta Have It was not just some fluke that this young filmmaker might have been small in stature, but was quickly becoming one of the biggest filmmakers of his generation, something that would be forever cemented with his third film, 1989's Do the Right Thing. Yet school days almost did not happen. Island Pictures, who had acquired and successfully distributed She's Gotta Have It in 1986, had the right of first option on Lee's next project. When the director presented them with the screenplay for School Days, his comedy-drama-musical about two young black men trying to find their voice and purpose at a historically black college during homecoming weekend, Island approved the project in August 1986, just days after She's Gotta Have It opened to blockbuster business in Los Angeles and New York City, but with a $3 million budget. When Lee came back and said he would need $5 million to make the movie on location in Atlanta, Island put the movie into turnaround. Putnam, seeing the chance to establish a long-term relationship with the up-and-coming filmmaker, bought the project from Island in February 1987, and Lee would be filming on the campus of Morris Brown University less than five weeks later with a $6.5 million budget. At the time, School Days was filled with mostly newer actors, with a few veterans in the more adult roles to give audiences some name recognition. Today's those younger actors are amongst the best and most established actors working today, including Larry Fishburne, Giancarlo Esposito, Tisha Campbell, Joe Seneca, Samuel L. Jackson, and Roger Guinevere Smith. The film would also introduce us to a great new talent who sadly left us far too early, Bill Nunn, and also featured two actors who would become famous several months after the film completed shooting, but before its release. In Jasmine Guy and Kadeem Hardison, thanks to the Lisa Bonet Cosby Show spinoff, A Different World. This would also be Lee's first time directing world-class professionals like Art Evans and Ossie Davis. Today, some of the storyline, which follows Fishburne's Dap Dunlap, trying to get the college to divest itself from any dealings with the racist apartheid government of South Africa, might not make much sense to someone born, say after 1988. The collapse of the brutal white Afrikaner government happened nearly 30 years ago, 
But in 1988, it was a major statement for a Hollywood movie to have such a bold and progressive storyline. But even without those immediate references, much of the film should be recognizable to anyone of any age or of any race. The hazing of fraternity pledges, the conflicts between people with different ideologies, sexual politics. Yet, despite the drama, the film is a lot of fun and has one of the better soundtracks of the 1980s. also has one of the better scores from any 80s movie, courtesy of Spike's dad, jazz bassist and composer, Bill Lee. One of the best choreographed dance scenes from an 80s movie. Don't you wish you had hair like this? Then the boys give you a kiss. Talk about nothing but bliss. Then you're gonna see what you miss. If a flash of sand on your head, then I'm sure he'd break all his legs. Cause you got so much grease up there. Dear, was that a weave that you wear? Well, you got School Days would also represent the first film credit for Ruth E. Carter, who would work with Lee a total of 10 times between 1988 and 2015, and would win an Academy Award for her work on Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Upon seeing the final completed film, new studio chief Don Steele wasn't really enthusiastic about the film, but she too felt it was important to try and keep Spike Lee in the Columbia family. Some may have seen opening the film on only 220 screens on February 10th during the long President's Day holiday weekend against no less than five other wide releases as a half-assed attempt to keep Spike happy. But the film would prove to be a qualified hit, even with minimal advertising and promotion. 
School Days may have only opened in 10th place with $1.8 million in ticket sales, but its $8,200 per screen average would be more than double the other major releases that weekend. The Carl Weathers action drama Axton Jackson, the Justine Bateman musical comedy Satisfaction, which would be our first serious look at an up-and-coming actress named Julia Roberts, the Wes Craven horror film The Serpent and the Rainbow, the John Hughes pregnancy dramedy She's Having a Baby, and the Steven Seagal action drama Shoot to Kill. By week four, Satisfaction and The Serpent and the Rainbow would have already disappeared from theaters, but School Days would still be in 11th place and would have only lost nine screens in the preceding month. The film would continue to play throughout the late winter and early spring and would finish its run with $14.5 million in ticket sales. But Spike Lee would make five of his next six movies for Universal Pictures and would only work with Columbia Pictures one more time with Get on the Bus in 1996. Wanting to be rid of some of Putnam's orphans, Columbia would release no less than four movies in an eight-day period, two on March 11th and two on March 18th. Neither Paul Golding's Pulse nor Brian Gilbert's Vice Versa, the two movies released on March 11th, were the types of movies one would expect from David Putnam. Pulse was a tepid PG-13 sci-fi horror film about a sentient pulse of electricity that hunts people through the power grid of Los Angeles, while Vice Versa was the second of three Freaky Friday-like body-switching comedies to come out within a half year of each other. Sister studio Tristar's Like Father, Like Son would be released first, five months earlier, while New Line's 18 Again, featuring George Burns in his last starring role, would arrive less than a month later. Vice Versa would do okay in theaters, earning $13.5 million, but Pulse would only earn $40,397. The first movie released on March 11th, Little Nikita, was actor Richard Benjamin's fifth movie as a director. And after the Burt Reynolds Clint Eastwood disaster City Heat and the Tom Hanks Shelley Long disaster The Money Pit, he needed a hit. And boy, this could have been it. River Phoenix, still hot off of Stand By Me, would star as a high school student who, upon applying for entry into the Air Force Academy, sets in motion an investigation by an FBI agent who suspects the teen's parents maybe sleeper agents from Russia. The FBI agent would be played by the legendary Sidney Poitier, who would be making his first film since 1977's A Piece of the Action, which Poitier also directed. It would be David Putnam who would suggest Poitier to Benjamin. The director would learn from meeting with the actor that he had been sent more than 200 screenplays during his nine-year hiatus from the screen, and that none of them had spoken to him the way little Nikita had. Richard Jenkins would be cast as Phoenix's dad, the possible Russian sleeper agent, and Richard Lynch would be cast as a notorious KGB assassin who had gone rogue. Production would begin in San Diego days after Christmas 1986, and would continue to shoot until the end of February 1987. One of the story elements from the screenplay required footage from Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet, but San Diego was not known for having a world-class ballet company. 
But as luck would have it, the American Ballet Theater would happen to be performing in San Diego during the production of the film. And they were able to film the four-minute dance sequence in the theater the ballet company was performing in during days off from their main production. Unbeknownst to the producers of Little Nikita, but when the production was completed on the film, Poitier would fly directly to Vancouver to begin production on another film, the Roger Spottiswood-directed action film Shoot to Kill with Tom Berenger, which would actually arrive in theaters via Disney's Touchstone Films banner a full month before Little Nikita would open. Whatever excitement might have been generated in having the first Sidney Poitier movie in nearly a decade was deflated. When the film did open on 376 screens, Little Nikita would only gross $866,000, and it wouldn't get any better from there. The film would lose more than 58% of its audience in its second weekend, and it would disappear after a third, with a tad more than $1.7 million in ticket sales. Poitier and Phoenix would do much better with their second and final pairing, 1992's Sneakers. The second film to open on March 18th would be Pat O'Connor's Stars and Bars. It would be the second Daniel Day-Lewis movie to open in theaters in a six-week period, after what would be considered his star turn in Philip Kaufman's adaptation of The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Putnam himself optioned the movie rights to William Boyd's novels years before he would become the president of Columbia Pictures, and he would originally set the project up at Warner Brothers. Warners would eventually put the project in turnaround, and it would be picked up by Embassy Pictures. But then Embassy would drop it shortly after being purchased by Columbia Pictures. When Putnam became a head of the studio, he would hire producer Sandy Lieberson to continue developing the project. But when no other company would pick the movie up, Putnam made a deal for Columbia to distribute the film. With that commitment in tow, Lieberson was able to secure financing for the $7.5 million movie, which began production in Georgia in March of 1987. Day-Lewis plays Henderson Doors, a British art expert who gets a lesson in American insanity when he goes to the South to purchase a painting by Renoir. And you want to talk about a dream cast? Supporting the future three-time Oscar-winning actor were such stellar talents as Maury Chaikin, Joan Cusack, Keith David, Spalding Gray, Glenn Headley, Laurie Metcalf, Will Patton, Martha Plimpton, Harry Dean Stanton, David Strathairn, and Stephen Wright. Stars and Bars would open at the Embassy 72nd Street Theater in New York City, but it wouldn't open in Los Angeles until four weeks later, April 15th, with a single screen engagement at the AMC Century 14. A few weeks after that, it would play in one theater in Philadelphia. A few weeks after that, one theater in Chicago. How well did the film do? I don't know. There are no public records of any grosses at any of the theaters. A year or so after the movie was released, producer Lieberson would tell the New York Times, for an article about Putnam's orphan films that still hadn't come out by that point, that because Columbia didn't see the movie as a potential blockbuster, they didn't try to maximize the profits, and that Columbia would only book the movie at theaters where the exhibitor would pay for all the local advertising. Tina Rathbone was a New Orleans native who had studied cinema at Columbia University. 
This is where she made a thesis film, The Joy That Kills, which would air on PBS's American Playhouse series. One of the viewers of that broadcast was David Putnam, who would track down the neophyte filmmaker and offer her the chance to make her first feature film. Rathbone would submit two scripts to Putnam, and he would choose Zellie and Me because Rathbone said she could make it for under $2 million, and that she could get her neighbor, Isabella Rossellini, to play the nanny, the Zellie of the title, of a young girl, the me of the title, who goes to live with an uncaring grandmother after her parents die in a plane crash. Unexpectedly to both Putnam and to Rathbone, Rossellini would be able to talk her then-boyfriend, filmmaker David Lynch, to take a small role in the film as Rossellini's character's lover. The film was deeply personal to Rathbone, for it was partially based on her own upbringing in Long Island. But the film would shoot in Newport News and Williamsburg, Virginia for five weeks in July and August 1987, where the location scout for the film showed the director a home built in 1790 that Rathbone fell in love with. The film would open at the 68th Street Playhouse in New York City on April 15, 1988, to uniformly negative reviews and audience reactions, mostly against the downbeat ending that just didn't jibe with the rest of the tone of the film. A story in Daily Variety in mid-June would state that the film was dying in only three theaters, after only grossing just $54,000 after two months. Rathbone would go on to direct two episodes of Twin Peaks for Lynch in 1990, before retiring from directing to raise her two sons. But she's still friends with Isabella Rossellini to this day. Again, Columbia would dump two Putnam orphans on the same day, this time on April 22nd. Five years after his Spanish and Mayan language two-hour and 20-minute independent film El Norte received a surprise Best Screenplay nomination, Gregory Nava would make his follow-up film, A Time of Destiny. It would be Nava's first studio feature, and it would be the first time he would be directing major stars like Stocker Channing, Oscar winner Timothy Hutton, and Oscar winner William Hurt. The film would begin its life as a co-production between Embassy Home Entertainment and independent distributor Alive Films, part of a two-year $25 million deal to produce and acquire films in the $3 million budget range. But when the director came back with a budget of $7 million for his then-titled Destiny, the partnership would put the movie into turnaround. Putnam would pick the movie up, and the film about two men who become friends while fighting in World War II, who learn after the war that they are actually brothers-in-law. The film would begin production in Yugoslavia in August of 1986, with some war scenes filmed in Spain before the production moved to San Diego for the bulk of shooting. An early 1987 article in The Hollywood Reporter would state Putnam had slated the film for release in August, but that date would come and go without further update, although Putnam was still in charge of the studio at the time. In early 1988, new studio head Don Steele would update the release date, first to April 8th and then to April 22nd, releasing a new title for the film, A Time of Destiny. It was also around this time that Columbia would shuffle off the foreign sales to sister company Nelson Entertainment, 
who would sell off international rights at the American film market territory by territory. Before the film opened on April 22nd, it would play at the Cleveland International Film Festival. Reviews from the film festival and from critics in the cities where the film would open were not kind. Roger Ebert would be one of the few to praise the film, but his television partner Gene Siskel would write a scathing review and would eventually list it amongst the worst movies of the year on their Siskel and Ebert year-end wrap-up show. Opening on 216 screens, the film would open in 15th place with $509,000 in ticket sales. Its $2,358 per screen average would be just a tad higher than Moonstruck's $2,318, but then Moonstruck had already been out for 19 weeks at that point. Columbia would not report grosses after the second weekend, with a mere $1.2 million final gross. Then there is our last film for this episode, Michael Radford's White Mischief. Based on a 1969 book by Sunday Times journalist James Fox, White Mischief would dramatize the events of the Happy Valley murder case in Kenya in 1941, when Sir Henry Broughton was tried for the murder of Jocelyn Hay, Earl of Errol. The film would be one of several films left in limbo when Goldcrest, the famed British production company Putnam once ran, went broke in 1986. Putnam would bring the film back to life by bringing it into the Columbia fold. With the movie back on track, Radford would assemble a first-class cast, including Joss Ackland as Broughton and Charles Dance as Hay, as well as Geraldine Chaplin, Hugh Grant, Murray Head, Trevor Howard, John Hurt, Sarah Miles, and Greta Scacchi. Most of the $8.5 million film would be shot by the great Roger Deakins at Shepherd and Studios outside London, with some location shooting in Kenya between February and May 1987. The film would be released in England at the end of 1987, but it would not do very well, grossing only £1.5 million, in large parts thanks to a BBC television movie called The Happy Valley, which told the same true-life story and showed on television three months before this film opened in theaters. In America, the film couldn't find success because most people didn't know who Michael Radford was or who anyone in the cast were. The film would do gangbusters on its opening weekend at the Carnegie Hall Cinema in New York City with more than $24,500 over those first three days. But then Columbia would not open the film in Los Angeles for another six weeks and continue to slowly send it out over the course of the summer. Although it would play in theaters for nine months, White Mischief would never play in more than 87 theaters in any given week, and it would wrap up its theatrical run with only $3.1 million. And with that, we conclude the first half of the movies of David Putnam at Columbia. Thank you for listening. We will talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, produced, narrated and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 